morning, friends, and happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to go ahead and say that because I'm on a mission to reclaim St. Patrick's Day, and I have never seen this many Irish people in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I look out there, and I see a sea of green, and uh, we need to reclaim St. Patrick's Day. If you want to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, do it in a way that would make Patrick proud, not getting drunk on green beer or uh, pinching people, but... Go and evangelize a small nation. That's what he did. He shared the gospel with the whole nation of Ireland. And uh, so that's a high standard. But if you don't have a convenient nation to go share the gospel with, then just at least share it with your neighbor or the people that you meet today. How about that? See, there's a lot we can get out of St. Patrick's Day. Um, you know, the... Um, I don't know why St. Patrick is the symbol for St. Patrick's Day, because if you, uh, if you like the color green, why not uh, the Incredible Hulk? Uh, you know, the Incredible Hulk had one superpower, maybe two. He didn't have heat vision. He couldn't fly. Uh, he, he's, he's green, and I'm not even sure that's a superpower, except, you know, you, you can't pinch him on St. Patrick's Day, but I don't know why you would want to pinch the Hulk anyway, okay? You'd, uh, the other thing that the Hulk can do, the one thing he can do, is that he's strong. He's just strong. He's not even very smart. He's just strong. And I always loved it when Hulk would say, Hulk is the strongest one there is. And he always spoke of himself in the third person. Because are you going to tell him that that's incorrect grammar? No. I always liked that about Hulk. He would just, he, all he had to do was be strong. And if he was strong, he could get anything done. He didn't have to have all those other fancy powers. Um, I never really thought of Jesus as being strong, like I think of the Hulk being strong. But in terms of power, Jesus is not afraid to indicate that within him and through him is a strength that is stronger than the strength of evil. So when I think of Hulk's famous catch line, it reminds me of a parable that we see in Mark 3. You'll also find it in Matthew 12 and you'll find it in, um, in Luke uh, chapter 11. Now, this parable is one that, that, that we often connect with two things. First, there's a mention of Beelzebub or Beelzebul or however you want to say it. And then secondly, it ends up with a discussion of the sin, of the unforgivable sin, the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which has frightened people through the ages and I will, I'm going to underline the old, um, um, con the old statement. If you're worried, if you're frightened, if you're scared that you've committed the unforgivable sin, then you haven't. That is logically how that works. Maybe we'll get to that in a second. But I want us to focus on the parable that is right there at the center of this controversy and this, and this conversation. It starts with one of those confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes 
of, uh, of Jewish legalism. We always call them the scribes of the Jewish law. Really, honestly, they're the scribes and they're the, they're the teachers of Jewish legalism. All legalism is bad, not just Jewish legalism, but all legalism. Because legalism sets itself up as a false god. And instead of worshiping God and trusting God, we trust in our ability to get things right. And that's idolatry, gang. Watch out for it. Here's the the text from Mark 3. The teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said about Jesus, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Okay, that's a question. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods. Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Now, let's make sure we understand what we've just heard. The, uh, the legalists have shown up from Jerusalem, and they cannot deny the fact That Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, has the verifiable authority to cast out evil spirits, to command them, to control them. He is able to heal people of diseases that have tormented them. He is able to cast out evil that has possessed people. He's able to do that. They cannot deny that. So they have to come up with an explanation that separates him from their system of looking at God and the way they want things to be. And so their, their, um, their explanation or the way they explain it away is to say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? He's able to control demons because he is possessed by one of those demons. There you go. And they sit and they bask in their own logic, thinking that they've explained this away. And Jesus gently calls them aside and says, let's think this through, guys. You're telling me that I am casting out evil and I'm, I'm, I'm freeing people from the oppression and the impact and the damages of the power of the evil one. And I'm doing that. Because the evil one is giving me the power to do that. He's saying this this makes sense if you think that the mission of the evil one is to shoot himself in his own foot. It won't work. And then he gives other examples. A kingdom that's fighting against itself. Nobody wins. There's no way you can say that America won the Civil War. America fought the Civil War. We didn't win. Nobody won. Everybody lost. 
There's, there's, no, there's no way that you can, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a horrible tragedy. Every time you have a situation like this where a family fights, you know, you can't say that somebody wins the divorce. It's just tragic. All of these situations that, that, that divide people and tear people apart, they're, they're not victories. Jesus says the only way you get a victory is if a greater power triumphs over a lesser power. And he uses the most interesting illustration. He says, we're going to have a heist. We're going to pull off a robbery. We're going to take the goods from a strong man. Now, who can pull that off? Someone stronger. Someone stronger than him who can tie him up and plunder his house. So his instruction to the legalist is, what you ought to be calculating as you see this is, there's the power of evil, but there is a power that is greater than the power of evil. Have you ever looked at this text and recognized that? That Jesus, when he's doing these miracles, he's not just doing them to draw a little attention to himself. He's not just doing them to prove that he is who he says he is. He's doing this because he represents a power that is greater than the power of evil. But too often, I think we give evil far more credit than it deserves. I'm not saying that we should take it lightly. I'm just saying let's not give it more power than it actually has. Jesus concludes his teaching with this statement. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Now this is the verse that we, that we stop on. We hit our brakes and we get very troubled by this because of the words, will never be forgiven. And if our view of the Christian life is simply, hey, what are the check boxes that I need to tick so that I can go to heaven? If that's all we're thinking when it comes to salvation and being a disciple, then this is going to alarm you. Because you're going to be afraid that this will show up in your record and there's no forgiveness. Now, fallacy number one. Fallacy number one is, is that we have allowed the idea that there is somehow a sin, that there is somehow some sort of trespass, that the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross is not sufficient to atone for it. Now, when you say it like that, isn't that ridiculous? I mean, think about it. Oh, you know, we, 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 we've just celebrated the Lord's Supper. We preach the, the mercy of the cross. We preach the mercy of God. We preach about the power of the atoning blood. We sing songs about it. We're so, we're so excited to sing songs about there being power in the blood that we even leave out the E in power. There's power in the blood. We, we sing that. But when it comes to this sin against the Holy Spirit, well, now, no, there's no power in the blood. Can't do that. Wrong. That's not the logic behind this statement. The logic behind this statement is you cannot be forgiven if you cannot accept the power that saves you. 
put it like this. If, if, if I gave you a cure for a disease, a pill, a tablet, a, a liquid, some, some cure for a disease, you pick your disease, and I've got it right there, and I said, this will cure you. It's been verified. It's worked. This will cure you. And you have the disease that this will cure, and I give it to you, and you say, hmm, I don't know. Stuff like that doesn't really work, and you never take the cure. People would say, well, what do you know? I guess it really couldn't cure that disease. You see how ridiculous that is, right? It's because you never took the cure. The Pharisees are not accepting the power that saves. They're ascribing it to evil. They see the work of God. They see the power of God that has reached their shores to come and save them. And they say, no. This isn't, this isn't God. If you've seen the movie Dunkirk, uh, it, it's a most interesting portrayal of what's called the miracle of Dunkirk, where the, uh, the British troops are on the, uh, uh, the, the shore of, of France, and they send, they send boats across the English Channel. Just everybody who's got a boat in Britain goes across the English Channel to pick them up and save them. And people are scrambling to get on these boats to get, they're surrounded by the enemy and then they are saved and the, and the army is saved so that they can fight again another day. Now, as powerful and as impressive as that is, who could be saved if they stood there on the shore surrounded by the enemy and said, no, I'm not going to take any help from anybody because I don't trust your boat. That's the unforgivable sin. It's unforgivable because you've done exactly what the legalists are accusing Jesus of doing, which is fighting against himself. When we ascribe what God does to evil, then, then we've, just, we've just damaged ourselves. It's not God who doesn't forgive us. We have cut ourselves off from forgiveness. And I'm going to tell you, you know, you might think, well, okay, good, that's good, that's good. We don't do that. We don't do that. No, we don't. And I'm going to tell you, you can be forgiven. But where I'm afraid this shows up is this shows up often in our, um, in the way that we view other people and in the way that we view the world that we live in. Sometimes we see what God is doing, and because it doesn't sit well with us, we might think, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that that's God at work. And we get cynical. And we begin to doubt. Why don't we simply practice humility and let God take care of God's business, and we be obedient and ready to receive and accept whatever it is that he chooses to do? Because Christ is stronger than Satan. And I think one of the ways that we <clears throat> get dangerously close to what the legalists are doing is that we ignore that Christ has that strength that is stronger than the evil one. Sometimes we want to give Satan far too much credit. We, 
want to give him credit that, oh, you know, all the bad things that are happening, it's the devil working in me, it's the devil working in them. Usually it's the devil working in other people. It's the devil ruining our plans. And God is saying, you are not stronger than the evil one, but I am. And the reason why we are not experiencing a lot of victory is because we are not trusting in the one who is stronger. Can you imagine what it would be like if you had the world's greatest athlete on your team and you as the coach of that team decided to bench that athlete for every game? That's what we do sometimes in our own experience. We set God up on the shelf. We leave him here on Sunday. We don't take him with us. But every Sunday we show up here, Lord, Help me to do better this week. Lord, help me to defeat the evil one this week. Please help me. What are you going to do this week? Well, same things I've always ever done. Maybe you need to go out with the stronger one leading you instead of acting as if you have to lead him around. I, I think I preach these lessons to you because this is what I've experienced myself. Ted brought us into worship this morning by reading a verse about God saying, I will fight for you. Every time Israel lost a battle, it was when they arrogantly trusted in their own abilities. Now, they still got out there and fought, even when they won. They still got out there, rattled their shields with their swords. They stood there. They showed up for battle. But it was only when God was in front of them and fighting for them that they won the victory. When they were exiled, when they were enslaved in Egypt, God really worked for them. This this verse about Jesus saying that the stronger man can plunder the house of the strong man. Why would Jesus, of all things, pick up the analogy, uh, for an analogy, talk about robbing the house of someone? It seems, you know, I mean, those of us who are a bit prudish could be sitting there listening to Jesus and say... I wished he had picked a better analogy. It sounds like he's advocating stealing. Okay, he has good reason for this. There's background. Isaiah 49, verses 24, 25, and 26. This is a word from the prophet. Jesus would have read this. He would have known this. This would have been in the scriptures that he and his family would read at the synagogue and heard read. The prophet asks, Can plunder be retrieved from a giant? Can prisoners of war be gotten back from a tyrant? Now, the logical answer is no. That's like the Hulk. If the Hulk wants to take your plunder, you're not getting it back. If a tyrant has prisoners of war, we might as well say goodbye to them. He says the the standard answer is no, but God says even if a giant grips the plunder and a tyrant holds my people prisoner, I'm the one who's on your side, defending your cause, rescuing your children. Have you ever thought of God being this bold? So often we wonder if God is on our side. He's not on our side for whatever we want to do. But when we want to be obedient and when we want to trust in his power, he's there. Here he is saying, I'm the one who's on your side, defending your cause, rescuing your children. 
and your enemies, crazed and desperate, will turn on themselves like a kingdom divided against itself, like a family splintered against itself. They will kill each other in a frenzy of self-destruction. Then everyone will know that I, God, have saved you, I, the mighty one of Jacob. This may be where Jesus gets this parable. It seems reasonable to think so. But Jesus, very much the Son of God, is speaking and behaving and acting the same way that the mighty one of Jacob acts, promising to be stronger than the giant who takes what doesn't belong to him, promising to be mightier than the tyrant who takes prisoners of war unjustly. Jesus is stronger than Satan. He's stronger than the accuser. The second thing that his greater strength means for us is that he rescues us. Not just us as individuals, but he rescues humanity. All of us. The scale here is larger than we often imagine. It's because our focus is often on the person in danger, especially when that person is us. and, And that's normal. I mean, it's typical that we should be concerned with being saved. Uh, I, I hope we are. And I hope that we're concerned about those that we know need to be saved. It, it's typical, it's normal for us to have that sort of attention. If I mention to you the names uh, Robert O'Donnell and Steve Forbes, you, you might not recognize them. You wouldn't get the Steve Forbes right, probably. But if you're of a certain age, and I asked you to remember 1987, And baby Jessica, who fell in the well in Midland, Texas, you're like, yes, we were all worried. We wanted that baby out of the well. It was Robert O'Donnell and Steve Forbes of the Midland Fire Department who finally brought her up out of that well. They're the rescuers, along with a lot of other people. But their names are forgotten to us. And poor baby Jessica is 32 years old, and she's still baby Jessica. And we don't even know her full name. Well, you can look it up, but you don't, you know, if you know it on the, if you know it right off the top of your head, then you're impressive. Uh, we don't, you know, we might not recognize the name Clint Hill, but you've seen him. You've seen him. He's famous. Clint Hill is the Secret Service agent in 1963 who's climbing over the back of the, of the Continental When Jackie Kennedy is on her way out, right as the driver is about to hit the pedal, and she's going to hit the street if she doesn't get hit by a bullet, but Clint Hill moves himself into the car and shields her and the president with his body. We focus not on the rescuers, but we focus on the people who are imperiled. Let's take a moment and recognize that there are rescuers who can do more than the people who do harm. Let's take a moment and recognize that there is a champion, a stronger one, who is stronger than the power of evil in our lives. So that just as you're worried about the strength of an addiction or a... um, 
a, a bad set of circumstances or a sin that you have struggled with for years, have you ever stopped and realized that Christ is stronger than that evil and that sin? And will you allow him to do something about it? Now, if he can do that for each of us, just think about what he can do for all of humanity. Because you know that God has a huge salvation project. I'm going to say this, and this is going to sound weird, and I'm really just kind of saying this to, to, to illustrate a point. Jesus is not, he's not my personal Savior. Oh my goodness, did he just say that? Yeah. Jesus is my Savior. He saved me. He saves me. He is saving me. But he doesn't just belong to me. He wants to save my wife. And he is saving her. And he has saved her. And he will save her. And then he wants to save our relationship. And then he wants to save each one of you. And then he wants to save our relationship. And he wants to save our relationship with the people all around us. So I guess you could say Jesus is my public savior. He wants to save all of humanity. And I want to be a part of what he's doing. Not that he needs me. I just want to be a part of whatever he's doing to save. I hope that makes sense. And I'm not knocking you if you ever say that. I think it's good to own it on a personal level. But I'm just trying to make a point that Jesus really has a vision and a plan and a mission to save all of humanity. He does not want anyone to perish. That's John 3. Well, you see even in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, now this, this, by the way, is in the greeting to the Galatians. Right there, you know, sometimes we move past those greetings. And I'm telling you, you're going to miss some important stuff if you move through it too quickly. He names Jesus and he says, Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God the Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. I think Paul knew that the Galatians needed to hear that because they were working on their own salvation in their own way, on their own terms. They were trying to do it themselves. And he's reminding them that Jesus gave his life to rescue all of us and to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. Finally, this strength of Jesus gives us victory. Jesus as the stronger one means that Christ is exercising evil from the entire world. You know, we've got these stories of Jesus casting out demons. The most dramatic of them all is Mark chapter 5 where he steps into a, uh, a, a land of Gentiles. I mean, that, what that means is he doesn't even have home court advantage, okay? This is pagan land. The people there <clears throat> are farming pigs, which means it's unclean. Everything that can go wrong is wrong. The situation is hostile. To Jesus, It's just like that, um, that time when Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal and he says, look, let's make this really difficult for God to light the burnt offering. Let's pour water on the altar. Let's dig a trench around it. Well, Jesus has got those same sort of conditions. He shows up in Gentile territory, people farming pigs, and then, just to put another layer on it, they're in a graveyard. The unclean Situation of the dead is right there. 
And here comes the man possessed by demons who says that he's called legion because there's so many demons in him you can't even count them. And Jesus doesn't even break a sweat. He has that kind of authority. We see Jesus performing that kind of power. Let me ask you, did that all go away at the cross? I mean, did he just lose that sort of power? That's a pretty impressive piece of work, what he does with legion. And we've seen him do it over and over again in the pages of the gospel. So what happened at the cross? What happened was exactly what's been happening all along. You see, Jesus could only free the man possessed by a legion of demons if he stepped onto that shore. He had to be in front of that person. I don't know that he had to be. He could have done it any way he wanted. But he chose to be. He chose to go somewhere where he was not welcome and to represent God. And I love the ending of that story when the man says, let me come and follow you. And Jesus says, no, you need to stay here and let people know what God has done for you. By entering into our world on our terms, Jesus takes a reduction of pay. He, he takes a reduction in rank to come among us and to be one of us. And it's from that vantage point that he gets... He gets the twist on Satan. He gets the turn on Satan. By going to the cross, he is able to defeat evil because Jesus is sinless. And because he is always obedient, he doesn't fight back. He doesn't trust in his own way. He turns everything over to God. He does what we're supposed to do which is give God the victory. You ever wonder why Jesus was baptized? Uh, you might be thinking, well, no, I know that. He, he, he got baptized so that the rest of us, you know, would uh, get baptized. I mean, he didn't really need to. He just had to show us how it's done. Okay, if that's the case, then that means Jesus' baptism is a sham. Jesus was baptized because he puts his trust in God. Yes, there were no sins that he needed washed away. But he is still doing this because he is obedient to his Father. Jesus goes to the cross because he is obedient to God. It is the ultimate expression of trust and faith. And so Jesus is doing exactly what we're supposed to do when we trust in the mighty one of Jacob to fight the battle for us and to take the plunder from the giant and to take the prisoners of war and free them from the tyrant. When Christ goes to the cross and Satan thinks that his authority over the world is now final because the one who can challenge him is gone, he finds out that God rescues the one who was faithful to him. Here's an interesting text that, that backs that up in Acts 10.38. Peter, just context of this statement, so you know where this statement is coming from. I don't want this to seem like some kind of proof text. Peter's talking to Cornelius. Cornelius has no Jewish background. Peter doesn't even know that he's supposed to be there. God has brought them together. 
There they are. They're both realizing that this God, this Father of Jesus, this God, Creator, is at work in the world doing something objectively true. He's eradicating evil. He's exercising evil from the entire world. And whereas Peter at one point thought, let's see, that means that if God eradicates all the evil, then I won't eat bacon and I won't eat any shellfish and I'm good. And God says, you're not getting it, Peter. That's not what it means to be righteous and holy. And so he puts Peter and Cornelius together in the same house. And, you know, Peter's there and... I always like to imagine, I can't prove this, but I always like to imagine that, that meanwhile, um, you know, Peter, who's so kosher that he argues with God, that there's, they've got like bacon and shrimp over there on the, on the griddle, you know, at Cornelius' house, and Peter's like, uh, you know. Um, he's worried he's about to break out in hives or something. So the, uh, there he is, and they're there, but they're figuring this out. They're figuring this out, and Peter says to Cornelius, you know the stories, and one of the stories he knows, he goes through the, the history, he says, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, the one thing that Peter and Cornelius both speak is the language of power. They understand power. They understand how power can be a problem. And Cornelius is a pretty powerful person. And he represents the Romans who had power over the Jews. And Peter, at one time, was picking up swords from the kitchen table, really butcher knives, and thinking that that's what it would mean to fight for power. And they're, they're realizing here that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit, and that means he anointed him with power. And he says, and you know then that with that power, Jesus went around doing what? Doing good healing everyone who was oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter's understanding of the role of Jesus in this world is that Jesus, as one of us, was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And like our king, like, like Saul, who was anointed by the Holy Spirit and fought against injustice, like David, who was anointed with the Holy Spirit and could take down giants, Jesus was taking out evil. So even on the cross, as one of us, Jesus is doing what needs to be done to take away the authority of evil in this world. You see, Satan is not a rival to God on equal terms. You know, in literature, you look at your comic books and your stories, there's always a rival. Sherlock Holmes in the old stories had a lot of uh, mysteries that he solved, but he had one rival, Professor Moriarty, who was just as smart as he was. But instead of doing good, he turned his knowledge towards crime. Sometimes we might think that Satan is God's opposite number, kind of his double. Not at all. It doesn't even come close. Satan is an usurper. He is someone who, who has taken advantage. He is a being of evil that has taken advantage of the situation of the breach between us and God and has inserted his false authority over us. Not unlike that situation that's going on in Venezuela, if you want to look it up on the news, if you're not familiar with it, where you have a leader named Maduro who says he's in charge and everyone else in the world says, no, you're not. But it's going to take somebody going in there 
an undoing Maduro for any of that to change. In this world, Satan was our Maduro. And it took someone coming to us from heaven as one of us to undo him. Thank God the Son of God was stronger than him. And Jesus is still going out with his spirit in us, doing good and healing those who are oppressed by the devil. Christ is stronger, and that's why he rescues all of us. And you know, the people that you see today, I want you to remember, Christ is working to rescue them. Maybe they have been saved, maybe they haven't yet. You can't save them. I can't save them. This church cannot save them. The only one who can save them is one who is stronger than the evil one. But isn't it good that we know who that is? Christ is exercising all of the evil from the entire world. So when you lament the evil and when you are rightly upset and distressed by the evil that you see all around you, maybe in your own family, in your own life, and in the world, grieve, but have the hope to know that Christ is erasing that evil from the universe. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would teach us how to follow you like rescued people who are obedient to the one who is strong enough to defeat evil, to the one who is stronger than the strong man. And Father, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you today, trusting in you and trusting in your power. And that's not always easy, Lord, because we want to fight our own battles and we want to make our own way. But Lord, teach us how to simply say with obedience, we are not strong enough and we turn it over to you. And help us to know the grace and the mercy and the freedom that comes from living life on your terms. We pray this in the name of our King and Savior Jesus. Amen. If you have any need for encouragement, we're going to stand. We're going to sing this song. Elders will be here to uh, welcome you. And they'll also be in room 100 right out those doors.